Our great and creative God has called every person to create stuff using his stuff. But as we know, well, many Christian leaders and churches have gotten busy or gotten kind of ignorant, and they do not heed our sovereign creator's call to lead a rich, imaginative life for the common good of our world. How can we better cultivate this vital mission? Ted Turneau, the author of Popologetics and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent with me, has a new big book out, Oasis of Imagination, Engaging Our World Through a Better Creativity, and a shorter companion book, Imagination Manifesto, A Call to Plant Oases of Imagination. Today, Ted makes his Lorehaven debut to help our creative gardens flourish. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the hopefully thinky and creative podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and also co-author of that aforementioned book, The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I don't like sand. It's coarse. It's rough. Irritating. It gets everywhere. Not like here. Episode 176, How Can Christians Plant an Oasis of Imagination? in the often desert-like atmosphere of pop culture. We'll be joined by guest Ted Turneau. Sand gets everywhere, just like popular culture. But as we will find in this conversation, popular culture was started out as a good idea, but now it just gets into really uncomfortable places and it hurts and it's full of idols and shards and things that we don't want. How can we disentangle these things for our good as individuals, for the training of families and churches? And then finally, for building bridges in the world. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. First, however, we have our top sponsor, Enclave Publishing. They are creating great culture. I believe that they count as an oasis of imagination. And of course, whom might you find uh, in an oasis like that? Pirates, because they're usually planting buried treasure. Uh, This is Savage Bread by Victoria McCombs. It's dangerous to be a pirate. This is the new novel from Enclave Publishing, a highly anticipated final installment in the YA Pirate Fantasy Trilogy from Victoria McCombs. The seas have become more threatening than ever, with enemies closing in on all sides. War isn't just brewing, it's here, knocking on their doorsteps, threatening to devour them all. And just as she was warned, Emmy might have been the one to create the chaos, but she's a pirate now. A pirate who will do what it takes to save her crew, even if it means oath-binding herself one final time. Savage Bread, the final book of the Royal Rose Chronicle series, is available August 22nd, today, release day, wherever fantastic books are sold. You can order now online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller. It's also going to be an audiobook from Oasis Family Media. You can get more information in our show notes for this episode, 176 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. There you will also find the links for sponsor two, the pop culture parent and sponsor three, Michelle M. Brune. From there, I think Ted is in a uh, state of frigidity right now, but we're going to thaw him out as we roll him into the studio. Well, someone has just wheeled in Ted Turneau. He has unfortunately been frozen in carbonite, but I think we just need to thaw him out. He is chair of literature and culture at Anglo-American University in Prague in the Czech Republic, where he also teaches on popular culture, the media, religion, and social theory. He's the author of Popologetics, Popular Culture in Christian Perspective from PNR in 2012, and The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ with co-authors E. Stephen Burnett, myself, and Jared Moore from New Growth Press in 2020, 
and his latest volume, Oasis of Imagination, Engaging Our World Through a Better Creativity, from IVP just this year. He speaks widely on popular culture, the media, and Christian cultural engagement. He and his wife, Carolyn, have three adult children, three cats, and a wabbit. Ted, welcome to the studio. Thanks for leaving the creatures outside. Uh, I, I can't see. I can't see. <laughs> Ted's a nerd, folks. He is 100% nerd. I know that that description sounded extremely scholarly and academic, but literally, this is the man that introduced me to the One Piece anime by way of my sister-in-law, who's actually met him because she was over in the Czech Republic for a bit. He's literally wearing a One Piece t-shirt at this very moment. Of course, as uh, One Piece fans know, it's the iconic moment when Shanks donates his straw hat to Luffy. Ted, how current are you on One Piece? Can we talk Gear 5 spoilers or no? I'm still in the Luffy versus Kaido battle. Okay. Well, it's not far behind then. I mean, that battle's been going since 2020, I think. But But the problem is that we can't watch it without my daughter. Yes. And my daughter, a lot of times, uh, will eat dinner and we'll watch a little something. But we, okay, so here's the thing. My daughter and my daughter's boyfriend are both living with us at the moment because she he got kicked out of his dorms during covid and so he came to live with us and then uh taking over my son's old room and then ruth uh ruth had some problems at vet school she returned home and she's taking over her old room we tried we tried to get marvin into one piece oh just and, not gonna happen and he was just like I, I think we made it through like the first two arcs and he was like, yeah, this moves too slow. And I'm like, <laughs> you buddy, you have no idea. We, you know, you're made, you made it up to episode 30. Okay. This goes to episode more than a thousand. So yes, yes, it does. So 1073 right now. <laughs> yeah. We can't watch it with him and we can't watch it. We cannot watch it without, my daughter so we need to have those those rare moments when he goes upstairs to do whatever and my daughter doesn't follow to like they'll watch their own animes or whatever and um and so i have to kind of say ruth when are we watching one piece (laughs) when is it going to happen it'll happen soon give me a date give me an evening it's got to happen so this is the dad asking the daughter, when are we going to watch cartoons? Although it is yeah. a Japanese animated <laughs> epic with pirates with superpowers who believe in family more than stealing gold. Uh, terrific series. Y'all should watch it. I've uh, name checked it here. And of course, there's going to be a Netflix live action to make it cool for those of you people who are so cool. You can't watch cartoons. So that, that would be me. I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, I don't know. It's going to be either hard cringe or kind of awesome. I can't imagine it being the cartoon i can't imagine oh, it, 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 it it can't be it would have to be a translation a kind of a a, a yeah. dub in terms of uh being live action instead but the teaser sold me the trailer sold me even more arlong looks a little smaller you know you don't have as many hulking humans as you have uh in the anime verse but as yeah, so long as you basically look like the character and more importantly act like the character and believe like the character then i'm more likely to buy the translation so, Ted, I just realized that uh, a slogan we should have used for the pop culture parent is the family who prays together and plays together stays together. That's probably already been used. But yeah. that's something that really connected us uh, even before we were working on a book along with uh, Jared Moore is this idea of engaging our world 
as Christians from a Christian worldview. So that's chapter one, uh, which is how I connected with you about your original book, Popologetics. Uh, there is stuff in there about building bridges with your neighbors and how Christians can help one another, which we'll get to in the later chapter of this episode. But really, the application that I got from Popologetics was is that popular culture is everywhere. It is full of religious worldview ideas. You cannot escape popular culture. Don't pretend that you can. You add a story in there about how it's floating in the air, and then you kind of contrasted that with bad views that Christians have adopted about pop culture in many different ways, not just the classic legalistic, it's all evil way. You dealt with all of them, which really helped. And then, of course, you finished in the part three of that book about how Christians are called to read and respond to popular culture. I'm curious then, and this comes up in your latest book too, Oasis of Imagination, how would you say that Christians are called to read popular culture, even before we talk about the response? If you want to get into the five questions, or what are some of the ways that you were led to this topic, and, and how, how have you been reading popular culture? First of all, I think that Christians are called to engage their culture where they find it. I think that John 17 is really clear when Jesus says, just as the Father called me into the world, I'm calling you into the world. We Christians love the in but not of the world. I don't like that phrase. I, w I prefer not of the world, but called into the world. Yeah. Like we're not stuck here. God put us here and wants us to go further into it. We are to be to have a different first love and we're not to be of the world, but we're not to be holding it at arm's length either. I mean, reading is a, is a, a necessary first step, right? You need to be able to understand what's going around you. You cannot be a cultural ignoramus and then complain about the culture because you don't like it as if you're not part of it. It's something that behooves you to to understand and to and to watch it like i would say if if you're hearing stuff about barbie go see barbie i haven't yet um I'm, we're waiting to till my middle child comes over and we're gonna go see it with her but when it does come you know it'll be worth talking about so so you asked, how do I read popular culture? Well, like with the five questions, which we adapted oh, for the pop culture so, parent, especially. Yes. Okay. The, the five question strategy where, where, for example, contrasted with the Christian who's like, oh, it's all, you know, big, dirty Hollywood. You know, he said on Facebook, a big, dirty social media network or else the what you call the it's all good uh, approach where you're not aware of the idols. Uh, your approach helped me especially to not just balance those two, but just kind of clear them all aside and then go in a completely different and I think more biblical direction. I didn't realize that Tim Keller, you had a phrase that I came on after apologetics where he called critical appreciation. And I think that's a really good way of putting it, that we ought to be first and foremost appreciative of the culture that's around us because it's made by people who are made in the image of God. And therefore, it's not to be dismissed lightly. It's not to be harumphed at blithely or reflexively, um, but also it's made by people who are sinners and therefore it's going to have messed up perspectives that are baked into that. Whenever I talk about how Christians deal with popular culture, I say they, I, I reduce the, it's like five chapters in Popologetics about here's 
By the way, that that second section, here's a here's a secret. The working title for that section was why I'm right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> by, I mean, my, if my, got humble, it, my humble part. <laughs> it's not my very humble Christian, part. though. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Humbly superior. Was, yeah, humbly superior because <laughs> everybody else besides me is idiots. I mean, the, it was it was tongue in cheek, um, and I and it reminded me to like at the end of each chapter to state what I thought every every one of these guys got right. But <clears throat> the way that when I talk about popular culture with a church group or a school or whatever, I say Christians generally have two reactions to popular culture and one of them is and then i hold up my fingers in the shape of a cross as if it's like you're fending off dracula this is something that's going to eat you alive or uh, which is kind of mindless drooling i just it's awesome wow they make a movie it's so magic i wish we could make movies why doesn't the church xyz yeah the the enamored approach to popular culture like kind of the cage stage hey guys popular culture actually has some good stuff in it and then superman died and he was making the shape of the cross when he died and wow it's christian right well not even that if you say it's christian these most christians don't even connect those dots at all you know you remember that um that chris farley character on saturday night live he's like and 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 they'll have like some celebrity oh, yeah on the show and he's like and, and and you remember that time where you like you took the bomb and you exploded it in, in space and then so nobody got hurt but but you ended up dying and then the guy said yeah that was awesome <laughs> and, and that's and that's the level of in, of critical engagement so so i came up with uh, a a method um of asking five heuristic questions and heuristics are is simply a fancy term for discovering questions questions that should help lead you deeper into it the first is what's the story Mm -hmm. that is get the plot right yes for all of you all of you english majors out there who thought that it would never come in handy english majors are awesome i was an english major so um it it helped having an understanding of literature helps you understand plot points and character arcs and all that good stuff whether the conflict is internal or external you know is it terrorists who are kind of come to kill the the president or are it the, is it the terrorists within your own heart that makes you you know doubt your ability to move forward in life or or whatever so get the story right second is where are we and here I draw a little from a, liter- a literary theorist and philosopher named Paul Ricoeur, who said that a novel, if you really want to understand a novel, don't go behind the novel into the life of the author, which is you can't, you can't retrieve what the author had in mind. Instead, look at what the author projected. Go, don't go behind the text, go in front of the text to the imaginary world projected by the text. And I said... Well, gosh, if that happens with novels, I think it probably happens with everything, like every piece, every creative work that's out there. So there are worlds of movies. There are song worlds. There are video game worlds. I just started watching the replay of Baldur's Gate 3 or, or the a, a playthrough of Baldur's Gate 3. There's a whole world with mind flayers and, and psionic blasts and all that. So you need to understand where you are. And to get to that, 
you need to understand what are the tricks of the trade that introduce design elements that make this thing distinctive. If it's music, then you're talking about instrumentation and tempo and all that stuff that you music people are all about. If it's a story, you know, what are some of the rhetorical leitmotifs and, uh, and, and different figures of speech and, and plot pacing and all that. If it's a movie, camera angles, dialogue, cuts, framing, you know, so it's different for everything, which means that you actually have to have some expertise even uh, and not everybody's a film student not everybody's a, a game developer but know enough about the thing that you're really into to kind of appreciate what's going on and say okay i understand the forms that they're using in order to make an aesthetic statement and on top of that you want to understand the presuppositions the foundational presuppositions that guide this world and give it shape a moral shape what counts as good what counts as evil? What's cool? What's not cool? Is cool even a thing? Is there a God? Does that even matter? What makes relationships work? What makes relationships fail? Is history important? Is the future where it's at? You know, so just keep asking questions so that you get a good feel for the imaginary world you've been thrust into. All right. So what's the story? Uh, what, where am I? What sort of imaginary world have I been asked to come and dwell in for a while. That's just plain old basic cultural interpretation, cultural analysis, which some people are really good at and some people are less good at. I think you get better at it with practice. The third part is what is good and true and beautiful here? That's the third question. This is what um, theologians call common grace. That is the idea that God is so generous that he gives sunshine and rain, like in Matthew 5, to the just and then the unjust. But in addition to sun and rain, he gives beauty and stable governments. Sometimes they're just even. Uh, goodness, kindness, families that are not constantly at each other's throats. In other words, we're made in the image of God, and some of God's goodness comes through that even into the cultural works that are made by non-Christians. If that were not the case, the world would be a living hell every day, every second of every day. But it's not. It's really quite beautiful and wonderful here. And it's not because we're awesome. It's not because we're fundamentally good. It is because God's goodness flows through what we do through the image. The image is distorted by the fall, but it's not destroyed by the fall. So go look for that, those, that common grace. What one person who is summarizing my book called the shards of grace, like it's broken, but it's there and it shines in the darkness, which was so good that I stole it and used it in another book. Um, I think I gave, I can't even remember who said it first. Anyway, it's somebody else's, but it was really good. And then be able to connect that piece of common grace with God's story, because common grace serves a purpose. It's supposed to point towards God. It's supposed to point from the gift to the giver. So in a rom-com movie, you know, and you have falling in love, well, where does love point to, right? Where does romantic love point to? 
does the Bible say anything about God and romantic love? Yes, it's a it's a it's a metaphor be, for the relationship between God and His people, and and consummation and new creation and stuff like that. Justice, if you see the MCU superheroes bringing the bad guy to justice finally, you know Thanos defeated or whatever. What is that? But that's a callback to the way God is going to bring final justice and the way that he justifies the unjust and releases mercy and justice perfectly balanced. So there's all sorts of ways that popular culture kind of deals with that. The fourth one, which is maybe the trickiest one, but it's also the one that Christians try to go straight for, is where's the idol? What is, um, what is false and tr- untrue, deceptive, ugly, perverse here? And this is what, uh, and this one you have to be kind of careful about. You really do. Because a lot of people think that just means counting the cuss words or trying to figure out right. exactly how much of the stabbing is shown on the screen. And, and we actually uh, struggle with this even while writing the pop culture parent, because even knowing your material, Ted, this was my instinct. But I think the important thing is to emphasize the word idol. Not just sin, idol. An idol is a good thing that a sinful heart has taken and then stolen from the giver and then weaponized against the creator apart from his parameters for the gift. So it can be something that the story thinks and presents as good, but that in God's world, the actual world is ultimately bad. So that's, I think, what you mean when you say it's a little bit tricky. Right. It's any part of God's good creation that's. At- that becomes elevated to the ultimate. It's like uh, I taught a class on this, and I think I, I use the uh, I use the illustration of a kid who gets a bicycle on Christmas Day, and then immediately rushes and embraces the bicycle and thanks the bicycle for it being a bicycle, rather than going to his parents who bought the bicycle, which is what you're supposed to do. And like that sounds stupid, but that's what we do. Right? You're like, oh, this is awesome. You know, it's the Chris Farley. Oh, this is awesome without going beyond and say, well, whose awesome was it originally? And and that's what separates like enjoying a good gift from idolatry is can you give thanks to the one who gave it? Where you can't, then it gets to it gets pumped up into an idol. And an idol can be anything, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll reputation parenting you know children can become idols family can become idols church can become an idol nation can become an idol there's all sorts of idols love you know that finding that one that one guy or that one girl and you find that person and your life will be complete right and so you 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 locate where is the idol you don't locate where are the idols of the characters because that may or may not be the idol of the creator of right. this The world. story may want to show that the character is pursuing a bad dream. For example, Spider-Man 2. Uh, Spider-Man has an idol uh, in, in Mary Jane. He wants to balance both halves of his life, but the story is actually on the side of subverting his idol. And then the, the ultimate moral of the story is sometimes to do what's right, we have to be steady and give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams. Uh, a secular story, though, will gen- and even some Christian stories will 
do the idol swap. I like to think of the, you know, the famous scene with Indiana Jones, you know, he's, he's swapping the rock for the idol. In a the real quick, exactly. Um, so, okay. Well now, you know, he runs away with the idol and, and you get the rock, the ultimate replacement though, we'll talk about in, uh, in your fifth uh, question there. But I think that's what we mean in terms of, uh, subverting the idols. Uh, well, actually right now we're still in identifying mode, right? We don't do the yeah, subversion yeah, yeah, until yeah. the next one. So subverting the idol you need to know a little bit about presuppositional apologetics, but let me just make it really easy for you. The idol will tend to take some part of that common grace that you identified last question and show itself as to be the giver of this good gift. The contentment of romantic love. You know, is romantic love a gift? Yes. Can it become an idol? Yeah, it can. It often does. So what you want to do is you want to find out how the idol writes checks that it can't really pay down, right? You want to show how the idol is put up on this pedestal, but there are cracks in the pedestal and you want to kind of poke at that, those cracks until the whole thing topples over. So, and sometimes it is as easy as just saying the idol's claim out loud. So... You think finding the right girlfriend will make your life complete and give your life meaning. Huh? Do you really think that's true? And anybody who says yes has immediately outed themselves as somebody who's not ever been in a long-term relationship, right? You, you be in a long-term relationship and you will know that this person cannot possibly be the meaning of your life they're having a really hard time being the meaning of their own lives or just figuring out themselves or as i tell my students uh when when we go over one of these scenes you know you cannot expect this other person whom you're romantically involved in to be jesus because she's not jesus right she can't be your jesus only jesus can be jesus so in that way in a hundred and different a hundred different other ways how is it that the idol can't, doesn't really have the power, the oomph to give what it promises to give? And then the final step is uh, how the gospel widely considered, not just Jesus died for your sins and was raised for your justification so that you can be individually going to heaven. Second Corinthians five seventeen, you know, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And I and you NIV and ESV readers will say, no, no, it says he is a new creation. No, it doesn't. Not in the Greek. It says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That is, everything is made new. Everything, every right. aspect of life, you have to approach it from a different perspective because it's new. You know, that, Paul says that a few uh, verses earlier. Therefore, now we consider no one from a worldly point of view. Why? Because you're in Christ. You can't do that anymore. So the gospel, properly understood, gives us new perspective on family, on church, on government, on work, on play, on sex, on death, on school, on everything. Um, so you need to be able to articulate, all right, here's where the idol fails how does the gospel succeed where the idol fails? How does it subvert the idolatry by fulfilling what the idol 
said it would fulfill. This is right. what my my friend Dan Strange calls subversive fulfillment. This is how the how he was using it about the relationship between the gospel and other religions. But it's really true of the gospel and everything in culture per se, including exactly. religion. Well, I'd say this is a key point of sanctification, the biblical idea that you're not just saved to have your sins wiped away, although that is true. You are now saved into a new life, a new creation of having your thinking transformed, your imagination transformed. Uh, you now look at the world in an entirely different way. You're supposed to be looking at it, and then suddenly uh, all of these things are lighting up as false attractions. Uh, think good things, you know, great stories, wonderful meaning sometimes, you know, beauty and truth and all that stuff. But now you're seeing, to as the old hymn would have said, you know, it, it, it both gets brighter at once because you see how God has put his common grace in there. And yet also uh, in the light of Christ, these, stra- these things grow strangely dim. Uh, you can see that they cannot fulfill their own promises, but Jesus can. And then once you then kind of repeat that pattern of like, no, no, I'm going to turn in a sense, I'm going to enjoy the things of the world. But in another sense, I'm going to turn away from the things of the world to Christ. Christ then can say, okay, now look, this is my father's world. You know, I have given people, Jesus says, the ability to make these stories, whether or not they know me, anything truly good in the story is because I have given that person the ability to make it. I think that's really what engaging popular culture is about, at least at the individual level as a Christian. We haven't talked yet about the the applications you go into in the the next two books about parenting and engaging our world. So we'll we'll go to Mm -hmm. that in just a moment. Uh, first of all, let's stop by one of the most perfectly placed sponsors, I think, that we've ever had in Fantastical Truth, because we've literally got one of my co-authors, The Pop Culture Parent, and I saw the open sponsor slot here for The Pop Culture Parent, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this book, if you haven't heard it already, and even if you have. Uh, the Pop Culture Parent is a nonfiction book about fiction by Ted and myself and Jared Moore, so you've got the perspectives of, as you've heard, uh, Ted as the teacher. Uh, I would call myself in this uh, partnership, the storyteller. And then Jared brings uh, that heart of a pastor into the discussion as well. And we take all of what Ted has just been summarizing here, uh, particularly those five questions, and we simplify those to their essence for busy parents to do on their own and then especially to teach their kids how to do. Because popular culture, these human stories and songs and games and whatnot are in the world and they are not going away, and because they are a mess of both common graces, good things that glorify God, and idols that do not glorify God, it is up to the wise Christian parent to figure this out and then teach their kids to do the same. And a key point here that we did, Ted, in Pop Culture Parent was uh, you were being asked, hey, I like this apologetic stuff. I like the approach you have here, but how do I teach this to my kids? And there was a Sunday school in particular where someone was asking you, you know, maybe on the other side of feeling that she hadn't done it very right. Uh, And then we all got together and we decided, okay, ultimately in the book, we're going to take this approach. We're going to compare it with some unhelpful Christian approaches to popular culture. uh, And then we're going to do case studies at three different age levels, kind of inspired by the idea of the trivium in classical education that you've got to start at a particular stage with younger kids and then go to older kids and then go to like teens and young adults who really ought to be doing this all on their own. Segwaying then into the, the main material here, but first, of course, the Pop Culture Parent is available from New Growth Press and you can get the link to that in our show notes. I was just uh, selling a bunch of copies at Realm Makers last month. It's, uh, it's still pretty popular wherever I go. 
Ted, in chapters one through five of Pop Culture Parent, we kind of summarized how we need these biblical views of both the purpose of parenting and the purpose of popular culture. Uh, you can't just assume you know that popular culture is meant to distract the kids or maybe just teach them moral values uh, or even just to evangelize the kids. You know, put the VeggieTales video on the other room and then the veggies will lead your child to Jesus. That's probably not going to happen. Although Jesus can use the VeggieTales or something like that. Uh, just like he might use the good parts of a Disney movie. Uh, and then in later chapters, we compare that to uh, the wise questions uh, that help us engage pop culture with our kids. That's the five questions you just mentioned. Super, super sim simplified. Uh, and then we go into case studies for In Order. I think if I remember the ones we settled on, Frozen and Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and then Fortnite. Uh, all still very popular, by the way. I'm actually really glad that we chose those as opposed to some other stories. So it's got a little bit of a staying power there. Uh, I'm just curious, um, Zach, because you've read the book, you know, uh, how does this help you uh, in because because you've got kids of all different ages. So I think by now, Zach, you and Naomi actually have children that would fit with all three of these case studies. I mean, you, you've read the book. I'm sure some of that uh, knowledge has has seeped in. Like, how how do you think that that has helped helped you? in your pop culture parenting pop culture for us is not just what do we watch in our leisure time it's what are our kids reading at school you know what are their friends wanting to read with them or watch with them it's so many different categories I, you know going back to something ted said earlier we, we can't escape pop culture we're a part of it because we're in this world and so to be called into this world is just kind of living in reality basically right i mean we i guess we could live in a total enclave shut off from everything else but I, I don't even think that works. It, it's a little different with each kid. So with our youngest kid right now, who's seven, there's times where we might read a book with him. And what Naomi has done is just put a post-it note over something and said, hey, this might be a little troubling to you. So I'm just letting you know ahead of time when you get here, you can read it or not read it. But if you know this is kind of like a just a heads up, this part might you know be a little disturbing to you or something. And I think this was in a graphic novel he was reading. And then, you know, once you read that, come talk to me. And so I thought that was a pretty good approach with, so I'm, I'm just going to brag about my wife here because she does this all so well. With our nine-year-old, she's reading ahead the book that uh, our daughter was assigned for class because she had heard some things about it and she's like, yeah, I don't know about this. I think this uh, would really make her upset. It's about animal cruelty, basically. In our, so she is our, discerning the hidden heart of her child, which is a chapter yeah. in the pop culture parent, Ted's chapter, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And our, cause our, our nine year old is a huge animal lover, dog lover. And so my wife knew that this one book would assigned in, in class would, would probably upset her. And so we actually may try to get a different book for that daughter assigned there. Our, our teacher allows, you know, alternative assignments. Um, for our older two kids that are teenagers, we, we basically have like reading levels, like, you know, this is middle school level, this is high school level, and this is adult level. So like on our bookshelf here at home, we have books kind of separated out by that way. And we just let them pick out a book or at the library or wherever and say, hey, you can, you can watch this, you can read this, but let's talk about it. Let me know what you think about it. And we kind of go through some of these questions, maybe not so formally, but we, we give them a little bit looser reign again within those sort of reading age groups. You know, because there's books I've read as an adult where I'm like, yeah, may maybe not a teenager should read this, maybe an older teen, but you know, our, our girls are very sensitive too. And so it, it's also kind of knowing them and not just what category they fit in, but it's kind of knowing 
the types of things that they either enjoy or that are difficult for them. And knowing, you know, when to let them read things where they may not see some of the subtle things, because that that's what's come out before is that our, our middle daughter read a book that, and it was by this author that we had loved every book so far. And then, uh, and in one of his newer books, he introduced this sort of idolatrous thing that wasn't so obvious. And our, our daughter did not catch it until our, our older daughter read it. So we had to go back and say, Hey, what did you think about this scene? And you know, what, you know, did you understand what this was about? And, and she didn't really catch it. And so sometimes it's pointing things out to them that they may not catch. Just to piggyback on what you said, Zach, those five questions that I laid out in some detail are for parents or the Christian to ask themselves as they're right. as they're watching something. It is not you want to bore a non-Christian to tears. Just walk them through each of these steps. Or a young child to tears. They're not going to get it. Right. But if you internalize these questions as the wise Christian adult who's reading any of these books, you then can transform your thinking to start thinking in these patterns. And then it becomes intuitive. Like how you can drive at the same time as adjusting the radio without crashing. It it, it does take practice. But But then you can start. It is. It's important to let it be child-led. Absolutely. To let the the kids do that. I mean, post-it notes, great idea, you know, um, and and kind of giving the heads up when we were watching anime with our kids, when we would watch One Piece was like our Sunday evening ritual. And every so often I would stop and say, okay, you guys realize that. And they were like... And they got and they got so used to this. They were like they'd roll their eyes. And like, yes, Dad, we understand. There's an idol there. We get it. Okay, can we keep watching? But underneath the annoyance, they were actually learning stuff. Yes. So, yes. so you just um, so let this be child led. And the other thing that you didn't really remark upon, Zach, but it's sort of foundational to everything you said is you actually have to know what your kids are getting into, what they, what they're watching, what they're reading, what they're listening to mm-hmm. and be able to be knowledgeable enough in it that you can talk to them about it instead of kind of hovering over them, like in your parent blimp and watch the little ants scurrying on the ground and kind of scoff at them and like, Oh, they didn't make music. They, they don't make good music nowadays. Listen to the trash these kids listen to or uh, they don't do TV the way. I mean, music today is awesome. Films today are awesome. TV today is awesome. Uh, literature that's being written today. It's really like culturally, we're at a really uh, good place in terms of people exercising their crafts. And and parents need to not like retreat into Mayberry and say, oh, this anything that does not look like Andy Griffiths is is not going to be real, you know, real television or whatever. Yeah, I, I would agree and disagree with that in part. I, I think that, yes, like we have so many more cultural goods nowadays. There's so many more options. And I, I just think we have more good things and bad things at the same time. <laughs> sure. 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 There's more but, of but everything. Definitely yes. Like the, the quality overall, I, I think has gone up 
but you, you're right. Like there are so many more options. It's, it's like the joke, like there used to only be four, you know, TV channels. And now we have like a thousand or whatever. What's also great is how our kids have turned around and use these kind of heuristics on their own. Our, my middle daughter came to me yesterday and said, well, I checked this book out at the library. And uh, after chapter one, I knew I wasn't interested because of kind of the agenda it was pushing. It was just some fantasy book that looked really cool. And right away, it's, it's just going into one of these big cultural idols right now. And she's like, I'm just not interested in this. And we're like, okay, just return it. Then that's, that's fine. And so it's been good to see them kind of use their own discernment and make their own judgments of like you know, stories they want to participate in or not. Um, mm. And you know, a big part of what I've done too is just collect other stories that I know are good that I want to preserve for them. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of our used bookstore here in town and just finding stories that have persisted over the years. Like just, I mean, I'm wearing a star Wars shirt right now, so I'm a big star Wars guy. Um, I never got into the whole expanded universe, uh, star Wars. I, my friends would read those. I never read them. And now I'm getting into them because I I'm just, I'm not a big fan of new Star Wars <laughs> as much as I thought I would be. I tried for years to get into it and I've just, I've just abandoned ship. And so I've told, and so we've canceled Disney and then I don't, you know, I know the new Ahsoka thing is out. I'm just not watching it. It looks cool. I'm sure it's awesome, but it's just, uh, for me, it's just a, a turnoff for what they've turned Star Wars into. But I've got this whole shelf of books where I've told my kids, look, some of these books are still being printed 30 years later. Like these are, these are enduring stories. Like we, we don't always have to have the new thing. Like the new thing is fine, but let's also look at the things that uh, have lasted. And so um, I have a whole bunch of these books by Timothy Zahn. Uh, he seems to be one of the, the big authors in that space. I don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, I just know that th this is one of those cultural goods that's lasted. And so that, that's the other thing that we try to balance is like we, we do, you know, we still have Netflix, we still have some other things. And so we, we like to check out new things, but we also try to balance that diet with like older things. I, I know C.S. Lewis has kind of talked about this of like every time you read oh, a, like new for every book, new book, you read yeah. two old books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that's something we try to do because it's like, it can be, you know, I, I don't want to go to either extreme where, like you said, Ted, I just watched the old Andy Griffith stuff like, Oh, you know, at this such and such date, everything after that is horrible. <laughs> Andy Griffith really... show had a seance, guys. I think we actually oh, put no. it on the pop culture parent. Yeah, well, they, they were the occasional objectification of women. Watch. Yeah, yeah. Just don't, <laughs> don't watch that episode. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a a reminder that some of the old classic media too also had plenty of idols. I mean, that's pointed out across all of all of Ted's work, and so that means you apply the same rules. However. Uh, I do want to say just because the book or show or whatever has an idol does not mean like if the kids in her class are watching this and talking about it, it would, uh, I think she would be better served by saying, well, okay, knowing that it's got this idol, even if it doesn't interest you, you know, it interests your friends, read it see what you think about it, see if you can break down those idols so that when they start talking about it, you'll have something to say. Looking at it as kind of a, a quasi-missiologist 
we don't tend to think of our own culture as a mission field when we ought to. We think, oh, it's there for me to consume, and, I, and if I'm going to be a good Christian, I will consume those things that are going to build me up and edify me. And it becomes a very self-centered thing rather than saying, there are people who are lost out there for whom the gospel is absolute nonsense. What if, what if I understood their cultural worlds such that I can translate the gospel into terms that they could understand and such that I could like poke holes in their idols gently, you know, to the extent that they're willing to talk about this stuff, especially as polarized as the nation has gotten. We don't think in those terms anymore. I think popular, po- popular culture is a common ground that we ought to be more interested in. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's we, with each of our kids, we kind of let them set their own limits, you know, of like sure. things they're comfortable with and things they just don't want to engage with. And I think there's also a place for, I just want a book to read that I don't have to work too hard at that just can be thinking. relaxing. Yeah, Stephen has talked about this a lot. That sometimes is this a Sabbath read or is this a Monday through Saturday read? You know, you've right. got to take a break. And sometimes, like for example, I've dropped some superhero shows that nobody I know is watching and that I was enjoying, and then it became work. Yeah. And like I'm tired, I'm stressed out. Like you know, even a missionary takes a day off, but your job is still that of a missionary after your job as a God worshiping individual and a member of a family in a local church. Well, those aren't. They're not mutually exclusive right. positions. And I, I would hope as a child gets older, yes. they're more and more that they that they're like not doing the ah, that's ah, I don't want to do that. Like there's more that they're able, their their bandwidth for what they can handle culturally broadens. Yeah. You know, you don't like of course there's gonna be uh limits on what they can and cannot handle and what they will find too disturbing and so forth. But as they mature, they ought to be, they ought to be um, maturing into a place where they're not blanching at every swear word where, you know, where the, and, and that's, that's part of growing up. The thing that concerns me is when Christian families are so sheltered that they never do seem to grow up in that way. I've seen some they, of those. And they hold that up as virtue. Right. And they become absolutely incompetent in terms of meeting non-Christian people where they are because they're so uh, offended at everything that everything that comes out of a non-Christian perspective as if being offended was the point. And incidentally, that is going to not serve the children well if and when they go off to university because they will meet really nice people who are coming from very different places. And if they have not been engaging those perspectives, then like is not, you know, there's going to be a ton of forbidden fruit and they're and they're just going to like shrug mm-hmm. their shoulders like College becomes a place where a lot of kids raised in the church just leave. And the reaction of the Christian churches or the Christian families has been, well, then we're not going to go send our kids to college. I'm like, 
No, you just need to prepare them better for going to college. Or as, as uh, I think Stephen put in the book, we're not raising kids, we're raising adults. You're preparing them to go into adulthood. Yeah, I think that was me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, again, it's not all boot camp. You know, this is eat your beans pop culturally, kid, because you're growing strong muscles. There has to be, you know, it ought to be fun as well. And there are going to be some times where you're like, Come on, let's see if we can figure out what this guy's saying and how it does or does not match up with scripture and so forth. And there's other times where you're like, my little pony, I just want to, or, or whatever. Yeah, whatever. just a pure Sabbath rest type show. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Ted, I've seen one of those conversations when I was in university. I was just having lunch in the cafe and then next uh, in the, literally the booth over, this felt like one of those live action evangelical anecdotes that you would write down in a book later. I haven't done so yet, but I could. Uh, there was a fresh-faced student who was listening to someone. I don't know if it was a professor or if it was a campus group leader, and they were literally not doing small talk. They were having like a dialogue uh, about how the kid had come from a sheltered uh, evangelical-ish background and was just suddenly uh, overwhelmed by all the things that he was seeing on campus. And then there was this older mentor leader type, like the devil on his shoulder. Uh, saying that, oh yeah, you know, it's it's time to grow out of that. It's it's time to mature and embrace, mm -hmm. you know, relativism. I don't know if he said that word, but that is literally the idea that he was giving him. This is in the early two thousands. Imagine now how much more intense some of those temptations can be. I think a lot of our audience at Lorehaven has experienced stories like that, or they know families who have, because most of our audience are fantastical fans who are Christians. They love fantastical stories. They also love biblical truth, and so that's where Lorehaven exists. And a lot of them have been through the grinder, where they're told, you know, hey, don't draw pictures of pictures of dragons. That's Satan. You know, don't play Dungeons and Dragons. You know, some of that stuff is still around. Some of this material can help you, even if you're not a parent yet, to kind of go back over that to maybe appreciate the good impulses because you've got to engage the popular culture, even of the family from which you came. You've got to see the common grace there, the intent to protect children, but then also see the idols and then subvert them with respect. The idea of protecting someone in a bubble uh, is an idol. It is not something that's reflected in scripture. It's a good thing gone bad. And so that's why I appreciate what you've done across uh, all, all your books, Ted, is you are not only talking about engaging popular culture, you're also engaging evangelical culture. And I think the first three chapters of your new book do that very well. So we're going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, first off, if you want to hear more about uh, popular culture being God's idea all along, you can actually go to chapter 31 when we released The Pop Culture Parent. Uh, Zach and I did an episode about that. And then we did a sequel in episode 32 about those five questions that help us engage popular culture for God's glory. We will link to those in our show notes. Pop culture parents need to identify dragons in the world, not just to run away from the caves, but to teach their children as they grow to defend themselves against these dragons. That reminds me of our third sponsor, fantasy novelist Michelle M. Brune with her books Song Flight and its sequel Storm Dance. For centuries, humanity has fought dragons in a war to eradicate their evil from the land. Elisa, daughter of a slayer chief, was already kept from the line of succession by her vocal stutter. And matters only worsen when her empathic powers are revealed to connect uncontrollably to the dragon enemy. But when her growing up powers reveal a dragon's belief in the maker, Elisa wonders if the tales of her fallen souls are even true. 
Now she must make the most important decision of her life, remain with her clan in comfortable silence, or find her voice to end the unjust war between the races. A young adult epic fantasy, Song Flight, and its sequel, Storm Dance, look at themes of friendship, justice, and mercy, and following God's calling no matter the difficulties. Learn more at Michelle's website, Michelle with two L's, Michelle M. Brune, B-R-U-H-N dot com slash songflight, or see the link in our show notes. Brief recap, uh, we have talked about engaging popular culture as a God-worshipping individual. So just you as a person, your goal to create and serve God and glorify him forever in the world into which he's placed you, including the real world of popular culture. Then in chapter two, we branched out. Now we're talking about families. How do you do this in families? And I would also say we do this as churches. Christian local churches need to be training one another in discipleship to do that. Not necessarily by dressing up as Super Mario or Barbie to give a sermon about it. That's really corny, and I'm not sure that's a great tactic. It kind of demeans the local church service, and it brings popular culture out of its native environment, the real world. Churches can, however, do this in classes, in small groups. Uh, That's something we definitely recommend. But now let's go to chapter three. And this, Ted, has been all throughout your books, but I think especially in the new one, engaging our world as culture-making missionaries. And I want to set this up. Uh, a bit differently, because I saw over the last few days some dust up among the Christian social medias about some, I would just go ahead and say, bad but opposing takes on engaging popular culture. There was a publication, uh, a legacy Christian publication, that had published an article about Barbie and Taylor Swift concerts. And the uniform approach there was, I think, Ted, what you would describe or what you have described as, as the it's all good. You know, wow, this is so awesome. You know, hey, all these people going to a Taylor Swift concert and they're celebrating and they're kind of worshiping. And isn't church just like that? And kind of uh, emphasizing the positive side without talking about the idols. We've got to do both as Christians, but this article did only one side. And then the, another article took a a country song that's been identified as cultural conservative, singled out one line, and they said, this one line is terrible, therefore the whole song is terrible. Almost did an appearance of evil argument in reverse. And then along comes another Christian website, more, more culturally conservative, that takes issue with the first guys and says, you can't do that about this song. And then they say that there's nothing but idolatry in the Taylor Swift concerts and they're blasting everything that she's ever said and all that she represents. And it's just idols and promiscuity. And it's just a complete overcorrection. Whereas I have heard a Christian culturally conservative podcaster do a better engagement with a Taylor Swift song. I forget the name of it, but um, Hey Zach, we're talking about Taylor Swift on fantastical truth. Now along with country songs, sports next. Yeah. yeah, We're constantly crossing over to these other non-fantastical genres, but this culture conservative podcaster, listen to the song, whatever's the one where she like takes responsibility. And she says, I'm the problem. It's me. That's the problem. It's me. I may have never listened to a whole Taylor Swift song all the way through, but he played it. And this is a guy who's like very culturally conservative. Like he, he jokingly refers to himself as a papist. He might even be like, he might even smile on the term Christian nationalism. And he did a better job of engaging the song. He's like, wow, that's true. That's really self-aware. This is a really good song. He's like, it's not only thematically good overall, but like stylistically, like the imagery that she's doing in the song and like telling the story about what happens after, I guess, after she dies and everything. And I don't know, I just, I see such issues that people have now, Ted, 
people are not building these bridges. They're not doing that biblical approach of common grace versus idols. There is kind of this wrongful culture war take. And that is something that I think that you subvert and yet honor very well in engaging with it in the first chapters of Oasis of Imagination. How did you think then to write this book, having already written the first two, and what makes this one different uh, as opposed to, to the other two? How do you build on the previous work to go into Oasis of Imagination? Well, two things. First of all, I want to mention that there are actually two books. Oasis of Imagination is the 400-page one that is going to oh, take some time yeah. getting through. When I signed on with IVP to do that, or IVP UK to do that, the editor, the intake editor said, could you do an on-ramp book as well, where you will introduce the themes, but maybe do the thing that I hate Christian books doing. That is just kind of rehearse your opinions and, and say the arguments, but don't give all the, the receipts. Don't give all that detail because it's not going to be 400 pages. And that smaller book, which I wrote with jazz vocalist, art photographer, social activist, and all around amazing woman, uh, Ruth Naomi Floyd, is only 140 pages. So the idea is, if you're going to be scared off by a 400-page book, which has color plates, by the way, it's a really awesome book, start off with the smaller one called Manifesto, Imagination Manifesto. If that whets your appetite, then go on to the bigger one. Uh, if you, but, but uh, um, Caleb, who is the intake, C Caleb Woodbridge, who is the intake author, said, you know who's going to read Oasis of Imagination? Uh, seminary professors and pastors. That's it. So you I'm need reading it. I'm reading it though, Ted. I guess I'm a nerd. Okay. I mean, I know you. I, see, the thing is, I would be reading it even if I didn't know you and hadn't worked with you before. So okay. take some encouragement from that. Now, I guess okay. I'm an outlier, cool. but I am neither pastor nor seminary professor. And I'll I put it this way too. I've got both, but I liked the first three chapters of the big book more. I guess okay. I'm just weird. Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I mean, I did not plan on writing the, the, the other book that was kind of thrust upon me sort of five sixths of the way through the big book. Oh, good times. Yeah. I'm constantly amazed at feedback I get from publishers and stuff like that, just saying Christians don't like to read. And I'm like, well, that's bad, but okay, I'll write a, a smaller book. But, but here, here's what I'll say about uh, Manifesto is I think Ruth, Ruth Naomi Floyd, um, brings a practical wisdom to it that is deep and rich and make it like, I think there's room for both books. I don't, there's nothing like what Ruth does in Manifesto that I have in Oasis. I tried to do that by interviewing some artists and stuff like that. Okay, to your, to your question then. This imagination book was supposed to be part of Papologetics. That, that was how it was originally envisioned. And I wrote, uh, I wrote, so there, originally I had this grand scheme where I was going to say, all right, here's how we deal with non-Christian culture as Christians, and here's how we actually speak creatively through our own creative works as Christians. And it was all going to be one book. And then a guy at 
Crossway set, wrote back to me and said, yeah, nobody's going to buy a 550 page book from a first time author. The guy so, at Crossway was correct in his defense. He was absolutely correct. And, but, I don't like it, said, but he's right. <laughs> but what he said that was um, much more helpful was, and actually you have two books in here. So just split them apart and treat them as two books. And I said, oh, okay. And so, uh, and so Papologetics became 350 pages of here's how you deal with non-Christian popular culture. And the second book kind of broadened its scope. And I spent years and years researching imagination and all this sort of stuff. And so, um, and so, so what the way I like to think about it is Christians need a, a critical imagination for how to think through culture that doesn't come from a Christian perspective that can be fair and appreciative and critical, and that's apologetics and, and pop culture parent. But we also need uh, to understand how best to speak into the ongoing cultural conversation, the wider cultural conversation, as Christians who want to make a difference in the world, who want to capture imaginations of people who uh, don't give a flip about the gospel. And that, um, and that's what I call in both books, uh, planting an oasis. Mm. Oases are not bubbles. This is not a place to keep you and your kids safe from the big, bad, scary outside world. An oasis is a place of shade and refreshment so that people coming in from the desert can find a place that will refresh and surprise and challenge them in all sorts of different ways. And this book is aimed at Christian creatives, people who are working in the creative industries, whether you're an author, whether you're a songwriter, a musician, or a television producer, or uh, you know, script writing, or a game dev, or whatever. This book is aimed at you to sort of help you understand here's what imagination is here's what makes a christian imagination distinctive and here's the kinds of christian imagination that resonate best in what i call the post-christian world but it's also aimed at all of us non-creative types who are like i don't know nothing about art i don't know what's going on i can't write a song or whatever yeah but you can pray and befriend and support the people who can and believe it or not the christian church does not have a great track record of supporting the creatives within its midst if you go to if you are raised in a christian church and you go out to hollywood and try to pursue a career out there there's a lot of christian churches that kind of cut you off and just say oh they they're going to Babel. I'm like, well, Daniel went to Babel. You know, Babel's a place where you get stuff done. You go to the place where stuff's happening and you engage there. And and if you and if the person, you know, gets no support from Christians, yeah, they're going to they're going to, you know, end up in a very different spiritual place than when they set off. So, um so it is so the, the the second book, Oasis and, and Manifesto, 
is trying to get a conversation started within Christian churches about, all right, shouldn't we have a better aesthetic witness to the outside world, to the watching world? Shouldn't we be mixing it up? Shouldn't we be creating, instead of just doing praise songs and, and stuff for Christian radio, shouldn't we be creating stuff that's going to be enticing and fascinating to both Christians and non-Christians, something that resonates with both so that we can start building bridges and talking. So instead of just thinking about cultural consumption, it's about cultural creation. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I started with the earlier messages of the earlier books too, because this builds on those. A yep. church, for example, uh, whose member is trying to go get into voice acting or game development uh, or even acting in TV or movies, uh, that does not understand what popular culture is for is maybe not going to understand, you know, this is almost in their defense, but they're not going to understand the point of that. They may be mm -hmm. even a little confused because as you say in manifesto, or maybe it's Ruth who says it, you know, artists like people who are trying to be create professionally can be really weird and they can even break me. some that cultural <laughs> Christian taboos. I, I thought I recognized your voice there. Um, but even if they seem fairly normal, you're going out, you're trying to do a really weird job. And I know that there are some Christian fantastical authors who listen to this podcast, even if they are writing for arguably a Christian market, I happen to know that many of them would, th would, would say about their local church, like, I love my church dearly. I would never leave it. You know, they, they teach the gospel. They train me to be like Jesus. They're doing their job, but they do not understand what I do. And mm -hmm. that's the good part, uh, at least historically. And I'm sure in some pockets, some evangelical churches will, as you say, like actively shun you as if you're sinning, but you're not, you're not. The, the problem is then is that if they do shun you as if you're sinning, then they could end up uh, contributing to a self-fulfilled doom there because now who's going to take you in? a liberal church, a tolerant church, a compromising church, if you're going after a church at all, right. whether it's in Hollywood or whatever. Now, you know, I wouldn't blame the church first necessarily in every situation, but it at least increases the chances uh, that you're cutting someone off wrongly. I think that's why it's so important to understand the importance of popular culture as God's idea. Humans are supposed to make these stories even in a fallen world. God has not withdrawn the cultural mandate and replaced it with the Great Commission. Uh, you actually show very well how both of these commandments exist in tandem. And Ted, like you're literally on a podcast right now that to some extent was born from that idea. We do mm -hmm. not reject the call to ministry, to evangelize, to share Jesus overtly by name when we can. Neither do we reject the idea of creating stuff using God's stuff. Uh, so you have had a hand in the formation of this whole enterprise. And so reading this book for me is kind of like going back to those elemental ideas, but finally all put together, uh, even starting with a key theme that's a favorite of mine in chapter one. I mean, Zach can tell you, we talk about that a lot on this show. Sometimes I wonder too much, but because it's about eternity, you probably can't overdo it. The idea that human cultures matter so much that they may even last for eternity. And you go through Revelation 21 and you talk about the kings bringing their treasures in the New Jerusalem. And then in chapter two, you're contrasting that with, I think, a very good uh, engagement with what you would call the culture war idea, uh, but on its own terms. One problem I see where people try to say, oh, I, I can't stand the culture war, I don't like it, is they come along and they say, well, you're a culture warrior, you're not doing what I think 
I'm supposed to be doing. Whereas the, the guy who may call himself a culture warrior would say, well, I, I am trying to do uh, influence in culture. It just happens to be in politics. You don't overthrow that goal and say, no, you just need to be preaching the gospel. Don't worry about applying it in law and policy. You're engaging with this on its own terms. And you're saying, hey, if, if you want a more Christian culture, this is not working. This over here has a better chance. Culture war tactics alone do not serve our neighbors. Well, and, and I, I, I would say I would say culture war is um, actually, actually historically, and and we're seeing it play out in real time. Works against the Great Commission. Works mm. against people. There is a, a a sizable chunk of the Christian Church of the conservative Christian Church, which is so convinced that we must win the culture war that. I think owning the libs has become more important than the gospel of Christ, than loving your neighbor. By itself, it becomes purely rhetoric. Now, now I think we need some rhetoric, but it becomes it, purely it becomes resentment. A, it, it does, and it, it can become an idol. It can, it, can, it can become an idol. And so what I think you do in that chapter is not like come along like a, almost like a reverse fundamentalist, like lay down your arms, like be a pacifist. It's more like um, this can become an idol, but how does Jesus then answer and fulfill like what you're looking for? How are we going to get a more just society? And it's going to involve renewed emphasis on the Great Commission, and it's going to involve renewed emphasis on building those bridges. You, you like that phrase, Ted, a lot, building I bridges. Do. And that really is what this book is about. You're building a bridge to the oasis. Another imagery that I really like, and I haven't gotten to where you define the metaphor, which I presume you do in a later chapter, but I see biblical imagery there. Uh, the oasis in the desert. Now, people got to know they're in a desert. And if they don't even know they're thirsty, then we got bigger problems. But that's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to be a repository of the living water for those whom the Spirit is drawing. And you see then the church compared to that. You see uh, the temple compared to that, or even just the nation of Israel in the Old Testament uh, mode serving as a light to the Gentiles. And now the church has been grafted in, whatever people believe about that. And it is the local churches and the capital C broader church's job to be that. How else can you be that if you're not adopting the tactics of, for example, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, Acts 17, where Paul is going out. Now, Paul's trained, you know, he's not five years old. You know, he's not still in, um, you know, in synagogue learning from the rabbis. Paul is mature and grown up for this. But he can go out and look at the idols and say, guess what? I see you have a lot of idols here. Isn't that interesting? I even saw one you guys put up just in case you missed one that you didn't get from the, the legend tellers to the unknown God. Now here for what you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. And off we go. And he gives yeah, except, these, these except basic presentation. I, I want to I course correct just a little bit. Okay. Paul's doing a rational discourse to his audience. And I think uh, one of the reasons that, and, and that there's a place for that. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trained in apologetics. I get mm -hmm. that. What I'm asking for um, here is not, uh, Oasis is not the church. The church is not the Oasis. In terms of the books, Oases are these works yes. that Christian Very creatives make that resonate with both uh, Christians and non-Christians. Mm -hmm. Like in, in the book, I talk a lot about Tolkien as, as creating some of that. I talk about, there's a game called that dragon cancer, which does this beautifully. 
Ruth Naomi Floyd, her uh, her album "Root to the Fruit," does this. There are there are certain uh, and sorry in the big book I talk about those. There are um, there are people who do that. I'm really into the band Half Alive right now. They do that um, by not hitting people over the head with the message, but also there's just a kind of a resonance that is uniquely Christian, not overtly, but it's there. Um, the way I put it in the book is don't preach the gospel, rather create an imaginary world within, the, within which the gospel makes sense. Right? That makes that's sense. That's an oasis. Yes. That's, now, an, that's oasis. an important that's an important clarifier. Uh, uh, Zach, I want to bring you in because I think some churches maybe get a hold, Zach, of maybe some of these truths. I was just writing about this the other day. Uh, and then they decide uh, what Ted was saying, his idea is not that the church has to be the oasis. We're going to re- reboot the whole place to make this what has been called seeker friendly, for example. Uh, and that can include, you know, sermon series based on movies. And they think they got to go straight for the sermon to do this stuff. But it sounds like uh, Ted is saying, no, Christians who are part of churches need to then go out and make these oases at, in, in in another context. Like, Zach, like, how, how do you think you have done that? Because like, I know that you do because you minister to people who are not Christians. And, uh, and you guys do ministry like that, almost missionary work, even from home. Yeah, with a lot of the students that we minister to in my, you know, day job, we watch a lot of films, uh, short films, feature-length films, and we talk about them. And we we even try to choose films, and particularly short films, that have uh, some kind of interesting angle to them, uh, so, something imaginary, fantastical, magical, just to to really kind of make you think and give you a lot of tracks to run on for discussion. And so I I really support you know, Christians making these, and it doesn't always have to hit you over the head. Like you said, Ted, um, this one short film that we actually made in our ministry, it was funny. Uh, there was a comment on the video. Someone said, well, that was a great story, but couldn't you just put a Bible verse on the screen at the end? The story portrays the Bible verse you're thinking of. Like you don't need to just you want a bible verse go to the bible it's already there it is sufficient if you're making a movie make the movie and keep the verse in the world building not right there on the screen let me let me tell you a quick story um in the chapter that i have on ruth naomi floyd who's the co-author of the other book but i did a chapter of her in uh in oasis there she said when she was first starting out she would go into these dive you know, the, these jazz clubs or, or a bar or something like that. And she'd perform. And before she'd sing a song, she would like say, this song is from Ezekiel such and such. And he meant blah, 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 blah. And then she'd sing the song. And a uh, an elder from her church was there. And during the break, during the set break, he, he was like, what are you doing? She, she was like, well, I'm I'm making sure that they understand the reference and he said no 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 the message is in there oh good elder it's in okay. your song stop trying to explain it to death let the song speak for itself and i think that's exactly that's what uh zach was talking about that that you ought to let the story you ought to let the game you ought to let the the film carry that message rather than tacking on a bible verse or something so that you have to explain it 
hopefully there's going to be a Christian uh, in the audience who gets what you're trying to do and over a, a beer or coffee can talk, can, you know, the other person who is the friend going to the movie, they can unpack it and talk about it. That's way more productive than flashing a, a, a Bible verse on there. Absolutely. And, anyway, and, I, I interrupted you, Zach, but um, it just no. seems apropos. Yeah. And I, I think that that is important to understand the difference in setting and goal. Uh, the time for discussion about the art, uh, the story, the song, whatever it is, is afterwards. We do agree that there is a time for discussion and, and pulling it apart and asking what makes it tick. And some of the five question content, for example, you know, where are the idols? Where's the common grace? How does Christ answer the true heart longings of the story that the idol cannot fulfill? Uh, that stuff does not need to be done on screen. That'd be dreadful. You'd ruin it. But you would also ruin it by saying, just let the art be. Don't talk about it. You know, just, just talk about how, you know, how does it feel and what's your heart feel? No, the Christian then approaches and say, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about this. We're just going to know when to stop. We're going to know when to yeah. listen and when to then talk about it amongst ourselves and then actually start putting down some of those supporting beams for the bridge uh, leading to this oasis, uh, even that the Christian who's doing art has made in the desert. And then hopefully then the Holy Spirit in his infinite wisdom, in his own timing, in his sovereignty, will be bringing people to that living water uh, to which the art uh, can only beckon. But oh, what a signpost uh, to mix metaphors uh, that a great story or song or cultural work can do in the hands of a Christian who is grounded in the local church, who's grounded in the gospel, secure, uh, has, has that security in, in Jesus Christ but then is also secure and trained enough to go out and be a bridge builder in the world. Uh, as we draw to a close, I know we have not scratched the surface of this book. I've still got my hard copy on the way. I got a preview, but I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of Oasis of Imagination. And Ted, I know there's a lot more to say here, but I do want to have you back when your time permits, because this episode needs a sequel. It's a foundational idea, not just to any Christian authors who happen by this podcast, but Christian fans who are then taking these stories by Christians, whether or not they seem overt or subtle. And then if there are commonalities between their friends, unsaved friends, like people who you think the Holy Spirit might be nudging, or even if they're not being nudged yet, uh, he might just get to work through the conversations you can have with your neighbors. And then we're doing cultural influence the right way with those who are listening, with those uh, noble non-Christians who do have an eye for common grace or an ear for common grace, and then they might just have an eye and an ear that the Holy Spirit will open up so that they can receive the gospel and be saved. That's what we want, for people to be saved and to grow to be like Jesus so that and his righteousness will fill the earth. And ignoble ones, ones too. And ignoble ones, yeah. yeah, yeah. You may have to train a little bit. You know, don't, don't skip leg day, but it's a rough world out there, folks, and it is getting more and more of a negative world uh, don't retreat from it. Uh, you may need some tactical retreats here and there, but the point is not to retreat. Uh, the point is to reboot, recharge at your church or family is a secure place, and then go back out. Uh, that is what Jesus said to do. Uh, anytime that Christians in the New Testament kind of got all clustered in one place, something happened to scatter them abroad. And then they went out and planted local churches in uh, countries and cultures that were often even rougher than the one we're dealing with now. Uh, Ted, where can folks then get Oasis of Imagination and keep up with your work uh, with engaging popular culture for Christ's glory? There's um, a website called tedturno.com. 
T-E-D-T-U-R-N-A-U.com. And uh, you can read some excerpts there. You can pick this up. Amazon's carrying it. You can order it directly from the publisher, uh, IVP UK. I think they have a stateside distributor, Taylor and Baker, I think. And the Kindle's available right now, which is it, uh, when I published Papologetics, it took months for the Kindle to come out. The Kindle's out, but if you get the big book on Kindle, do it on your computer because you won't be able to see the color plates on your Kindle reader unless you've got a Kindle Fire or something like that. Yeah, I did not know there were color plates, so I'm I'm getting the hard copy. I want that pretty thing uh, waiting down my bookshelf. I'm looking forward to it. That is spectacular. That's spectacular. It's a hardcover, right? The big one? It is a hardcover. Hardcover, folks. I got yeah. a hardcover book out. Yeah, there you go. Now you're a real author. See, Pop Culture yeah. Parent, for all its strengths, it does have a dragon on the cover. Oasis does not. But the yep. Pop Culture Parent is a very nice uh, matte soft cover. So enough industry jargon. Uh, go get Oasis of Imagination from Dead Turno. Also get the Pop Culture Parent, not just because uh, I got to co-author that along with Jared Moore. And then even uh, any copies of Apologetics around. Uh, that was my uh, gateway to all of this and uh, really formative in the formation of Lorehaven and Fantastical Truth. So, Ted, I'm uh, glad we got you thawed out. Now, go back out there and plant some oases and really appreciate you stopping by Lorehaven. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Stephen, I like Ted's point that we can't ignore our own culture as a mission field, which it is sometimes. And to some people, uh, the Taylor Swift audience might feel like a mission field. To other people, Oliver Anthony's audience might feel like a mission field. Uh, I think that's probably a good topic for a future episode. But you know what? Everyone needs the gospel. Uh, we can't just shut off half of the culture and only try to please one half. But it gets trickier when it comes to our kids because you know we're, we're raising them to follow the Lord, be missionaries where they are, but also just have fun as kids and not have to everything be work. They've already got enough things to read for school, but I appreciate the challenge uh, from Ted that, you know, we, we do need to teach our kids to engage these things so that when they, uh, when they move out, they're off on their own. They know how to, they know how to discern these pop culture things. Amen to that, Zach. As I said, this is an elemental theme behind all of Lorehaven, including fantastical truth. Uh, that's why I called it the mission update. When we stop by the website to see what's new, by seeming providential timing, Josiah DeGraff has a new article out uh, just last week as we record, uh, Should We Seek the Gospel According to Popular Stories? I actually alluded to this in our interview with Ted. That's where you do the whole uh, book publishing where you say uh, the gospel according to Star Wars, the gospel according to DC and Marvel Comics, the gospel according to The Simpsons, the gospel according to Taylor Swift. I'm sure that that think piece is out there. Uh, Josiah asks rightly, is this the best way to engage to culture or are there better ways to pull out those bridge building moments from the stories and songs for conversations with our neighbors? Do you just go look for the John 316 stuff or should we go a little deeper? Maybe be aware of some other tools in the toolbox. Highly recommended piece. Uh, definitely check that out uh, at lorehaven.com right now on the front page. We also have on the front page, our recent review. It was actually today's top sponsor, the pirate fantasy savage bread. Really great book. Our reviewer liked it. You'll want to look at that review. And of course, subscribe free if you've not been getting the news anytime we post something new. And you can get free updates at lorehaven.com uh, for any of the content you're interested in, the podcasts, the articles, the reviews, the news. You'll also get your exclusive invitation to join the Lorehaven Guild, our Discord community, where we undertake monthly book quests 
into the best Christian-made fantastical fiction that we've discovered. Our next book quest is for Kyle Robert Schultz's book, The Beast of Tailsend. Our current book quest is for Kara Swanson's Dust. That'll be wrapping up as you listen. But then we head into some darker, more spookier territory for October. We're doing a little planning ahead. You're going to want to get into the guild, become a hero, join a book quest, and talk about the podcast episode topics like this one and our last episode, which was another installment in the Armies of the Alien series. Well, speaking of our last episode about Aliens uh, 175, we got some good feedback in the comm station from Nick O. The Wace who said, quote, you've heard of the great filter, now consider the dumb filter. The only UFOs we see are the ones dumb enough to get caught, end quote. That's, that's a pretty good theory, Nick. I, I like that. It's, uh, uh, you know, if, if we recover the vehicles from the dumb ones, uh, maybe that's not such a great idea because then maybe we'll be crashing them too. Also in the guild, uh, someone named Sheriff had a thought on episode link, says, quote, Read the informal survey on episode link. I think it's good to have an approximate link to shoot for, but feel free to throw in a few extended sessions when the topic is interesting and the ideas are flowing well. Like you said, let the spirit lead. End quote. And yes, we we are trying to keep a good length overall, but it's good to know that sometimes uh, deep dives are okay. And we may have a deep dive in the next one because next on Fantastical Truth, alas, we must report that another back-to-school season has come upon us, and we muggles have not yet gotten our letter to Hogwarts. Unlike the ongoing series we have, Back to Magic School, we're not going back to Magic School. But since the 1990s, that infamous wizarding world has received plenty of howlers, not just from concerned Christians, but also from overzealous fans and critics and even some sexual activists. One recent other podcast brewed all of this into a bubbling cauldron of controversy, and it was called the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. In our next episode, our own staff writer, Marion Jacobs, who, by the way, is crafting her own book about a biblical Christian worldview of fictional magic, she will appear in our studio to help teach defense against these dark arts. Meanwhile, you are called to engage the culture one way or another, but there is not just one the culture. There are many the cultures. You are a culture. Your family's a culture. Your church is a culture, and the wider worlds around you are also the culture. Culture's a great idea. It's a very human thing. It is God's idea. Therefore, it's a great idea. It has become corrupted with idols, but there's also good stuff out there. Let us train with books like Ted's and others and the wise friends around us to worship God while we're engaging our world, to train our families and churches to engage our world, and then to engage our world as culture-making missionaries as we continue to seek and find Christ's fantastical truth. <laughs> 